You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. In any and every age of church history, the most important activity that pastors and Christians and churches ought to be involved in is the proclamation and defense of the gospel. There is no more urgent message. There is no more important truth. There is no greater life-changing power than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is at the heart of the Christian faith. It is central to all that we do. It's the source and it's the power for our salvation. It's what fuels daily our sanctification. And it's the only means by which revival can come to this land. And so really then, it's the only hope for this nation in which we live. And as such, the message of the gospel is one that is constantly under attack, both from without and from within, both from outside the church and from within the church. Whether it be governments around the world and various institutions that seek to silence the gospel witness of the church and of its people, or whether it be false teachers that seek to distort the gospel for selfish reasons, or whether it be cowardly Christians that shrink back from proclaiming the gospel due to fear of persecution, or whether it simply be the failure of one generation to adequately pass on and prioritize the gospel to the next. The advancement and the progress of the gospel is something that the enemy works overtime to try and stop and thwart and come to a halt. Why? Why does the gospel constantly receive such attack and opposition and threat of distortion? Why does the enemy throughout the years of church history, why has he devoted so many resources towards seeking to impede the progress of the gospel? Well, I believe in part it's because of the truths that we're going to see revealed in our verse of Scripture this morning. And so today's sermon will simply focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if for some reason me saying that causes you to feel any sort of disappointment or apathy because of your seeming over-familiarity with the gospel, you think to yourself, oh, I, I know what the gospel is. I kind of wish you would talk about something else, something that I don't know as well. If you have that kind of a reaction in any way, then may I suggest to you that perhaps you don't actually know how important the gospel is. And perhaps you don't love it and treasure it as you ought. Because if you did, if your heart was so gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I think your response to hearing someone preach the gospel should not be one of apathy, but rather it should be one of rejoicing and thankfulness and eagerness to hear all that God has for us in this important verse of Scripture today. And so as we look at and as we study Romans 1.16 together, we're going to see no less than seven, seven important and essential truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these truths will serve to remind us of the significance and the centrality of the gospel message and the need and the urgency of its proclamation in our lives and in our church and in our culture and in the world. And so let me read Romans 1.16 and then I'll pray. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this verse of Holy Scripture that we can open and study this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We pray that you would Fill me with your Holy Spirit and control me by your Spirit this morning that everything I say would be anointed of your Spirit and empowered by your Spirit and that as your word goes forth that the lost would be saved and that the church would be encouraged and strengthened and that Christ would be brought much glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The book of Romans, of course, was written to the church in Rome. So Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire. And it was a vast city with beautiful architecture and a large population. And some of the buildings from this time are still around today. 
but it was also a city that was plagued with immorality and pagan worship. And there were many in the city that were opposed to the gospel message. Because to confess that Christ is Lord is to infer and imply that Caesar is not. And of course, Caesar was very influential. He lived and operated out of the city of Rome. We learn from the first word in Romans that this letter was written by Paul. And this book is somewhat of a magnum opus for Paul. It's his greatest work. It's his most complete expression of his theology and the finished, of the finished work of Christ and of salvation. It's really, then, an extended commentary on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sixteen chapters unpacking the gospel and its implications for our lives. Uh, it's well known that the book of Romans was very influential in Martin Luther's life and his theology. It impacted his theology of sin and salvation and, of course, justification by faith, that, that core central doctrine to the Reformation. In Martin Luther's famous preface to the book of Romans, he writes this. He says, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament, and it's truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. And so Martin Luther thought this book was so important that every Christian ought to know it word for word by heart. And so there's some homework for you as you go home after the service. But all that to say, this is a very important book with a very important message. And our verse this morning, and in part the verse that follows it, though we don't have time to look at that one, really provides the main thesis for the book. And so chapter 1, 18 and onward is really just unpacking what it says in chapter or in verses 16 and 17, particularly verse 16. And so you might break it down like this. Romans 1 to 4 explains justification by faith, which is alluded to in verse 16 and explained further in verse 17. Romans 5 to 8 explain the nature and the extent of salvation. And Romans 9 to 11 explain how the gospel is a message that is meant for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. And so as I previously mentioned as we study this verse, we're going to see no less than seven truths about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And these truths ought to evoke rejoicing and gratitude and confidence and even zeal in our lives as we are reminded of them this morning. That is certainly my prayer for all of us. Here's the first truth. Number one, the gospel radically changes lives. The gospel radically changes lives. And so by the time we get to verse 16, Paul has already referred to the gospel three times in this letter. He's referred to it in verse 1, in verse 9, and in verse 15, and so it's already becoming somewhat of a theme. The first word in verse 16 is the word for, and that means it, it links verse 16 with the verse that precedes it in verse 15. And In verse 15, Paul says that he's eager to preach the gospel to the Romans, which begs the question, why? Why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? Well, verse 16 answers that question. But for this point, I want to focus in on the second word of this verse, that little word, I, that first person pronoun, I. And as you consider that word, consider afresh for a moment who it is that is writing this letter and who it is that, is, that penned this wonderful statement about the gospel. It's Paul. It's Paul. It's the one who, according to Acts 7 and 8, used to ravage the church and oversee the imprisonment and killing of Christians for preaching the very message he is now so passionate and unashamed about. In fact, they laid Stephen, the first martyr's clothes, at his feet as though it was some sort of a trophy. What happened? How is it that perhaps the greatest opponent to the gospel has now become its greatest herald? It's because the gospel radically changes lives. When, the, when by God's grace the gospel takes root in the heart of a person, then ten times out of ten it will begin to bear the fruit of righteousness in that person's life, and over time the person will be completely and radically changed from who they used to be. They will no longer resemble who they were before they encountered the gospel. 
And oftentimes we see in the Bible that God chooses and saves and changes the most unlikeliest of people, doesn't he? People like Paul. So that the full power of the gospel can be put on display in doing so, and he can be brought much glory. This is his MO. It's just like him to pick Paul, the unlikeliest of people, to plant churches and to train pastors and elders and to write large portions of the New Testament. I don't think you or I would have picked someone like Paul. But this is God's MO. And he's done this all throughout Scripture. Think about Moses speaking to God for the people and representing the people before Pharaoh. And yet he was someone who was slow of speech and of tongue. Or Gideon, who when the angel calls him to deliver the people from the Midianites, he says, how can I save Israel? I'm from the weakest clan and I'm the least in my family. Or David, who was the youngest of his brothers and was pretty much forgotten about. He had to go find him when Samuel was looking for the right brother to anoint. This is how God works. He's in the business of using the weak to shame the strong and the foolish to shame the wise and put the power of the gospel on display by saving unlikely, unworthy people. In my own life, whenever I'm tempted to doubt, especially toward doubting the power of the gospel, maybe there's someone that I want to see come to Christ, but there's a part of me that doubts that it's even possible. How could that person come to Christ? When I have those moments, all I have to do is think back. This is what I do. I think back to how the gospel radically changed the lives and the marriage of my parents. So my dad was saved in 2001 when I was 13. So now I've just dated myself. <laughs> You're all doing the calculation. My dad was saved when I was 13, and my mom was saved a couple years after that. And without going into details, their lives were completely different than they were before. Uh, before their conversions than they were after. And if you had told me when I was a young child where they would be now, despite the fact that I would regularly pray for them even as a child, I simply wouldn't have had the capacity to comprehend how it was possible that God's mercy would have been manifested in their lives in the way that it has been, such that now they have a great marriage. And my dad is a pastor, and my mom works at the church that he's at, and together they've contributed to the discipleship of many over the years. And every once in a while, I'll tell Erin, my wife, a story about what my parents were like before they were saved, and she can't believe it because she's only known them after their conversion. And there's no other explanation for how this could be possible than the life-changing effects of the gospel. And perhaps you too can relate. You, your own life or someone you know has a similar testimony. The gospel radically changes lives. And so a question we often ask is, how do I know if I'm saved? How do you know if you're saved? Well, your life ought to look radically different than it did prior to salvation. That's how you know if you're saved. When God saves a person, he gives them new desires and new attitudes and new priorities. And that person will begin to increasingly move away from sin, put off sin, and move toward righteousness, put it on. They will grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Put simply, you cannot genuinely embrace the gospel and remain unchanged. Someone who claims to believe the gospel but otherwise remains unchanged is a false convert. Period. They're not saved. Because when the gospel is believed in a person's heart, it will change them from the inside out. Now, sometimes that change is instantly radical, but sometimes it's one degree of glory to another. And over the long haul, there'll be that radical change. But there ought to be change one way or another, such that they no longer resemble who they used to be. Consider these encouraging passages in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we have that wonderful phrase, and such were some of you. But you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You're no longer defined by those former sins. You're no longer who you used to be because the gospel has changed your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are completely made new. You are a new creation, a new creature with a new heart because the gospel radically changes lives. And Paul is exhibit A. If you want proof of that, just look at Paul, the one who wrote this verse. The gospel radically changes lives. Number two, the gospel produces fearless witnesses. Paul writes, I am not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel. And we're familiar with this verse, but it's kind of peculiar when you think about it. Why did Paul feel it necessary to declare so early in his letter that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Well, there's a great deal communicated to us in this declaration. His declaration implies that the content of the gospel is not always well received. It's not always immediately embraced. In fact, oftentimes it's viewed as shameful or offensive or foolish. There were many in Rome, just as there are today here in Waterloo, that would have despised the gospel, that would have looked down on those who believed it and certainly would have persecuted those who proclaimed it like Paul. There were many that saw the message of a bloody cross and the need for repentance as utter foolishness. And so, unsurprisingly perhaps, whether it be out of fear of man or fear of persecution or harm, many were tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. They were tempted to shrink back from proclaiming it lest it lead to some kind of opposition. And it always does. When the gospel is preached faithfully, there will be some kind of opposition. Why is it this way? Well, there are many reasons. Not the least of which is that the gospel brings conviction of sin and demands repentance. Demands people leave their sin behind. And some people don't want to do that because they love their sin. And they don't like the conviction that they feel when their sin is preached against. The gospel is an affront to the independence and pride and self-reliance of man. The gospel is a confession that there is a higher authority that every human and every human authority must bow the knee to and obey above all else. The gospel is a message that speaks of man's depravity and our inability and our unworthiness. And man, in their pride, we, we, we don't like to hear that. The gospel is a proclamation of triumph, but it's a proclamation of triumph through the blood of a Savior that was killed in the most shameful of ways, on a Roman cross, crucified, naked, and ashamed. And so there are many, many reasons why the faithful preaching of the gospel might lead to opposition. Uh, Robert Haldane, in his commentary on this verse, and commenting specifically on how there's much in the gospel that someone might be tempted to be ashamed of, he writes this. He says, No other religion is so offensive to the pride of man. It is also observable that the more the gospel is corrupted and the more its peculiar features are obscured by error, the less do we observe of the shame it is calculated to produce. It is, in fact, the fear of opposition and contempt that often leads to the corruption of the gospel. In other words, people soften it or they try and take things out of it so that it's not as offensive. But this peculiarity affords a strong proof of the truth of the apostle's doctrine. Had he not been convinced of its truth, would it not have been madness to invent a forgery in a form which excites the natural prejudices of mankind? Why should he forge a doctrine which he was aware would be hateful to the world? Hey, think about that. That's a really good point. In other words, the very fact that the gospel is so offensive to man and so unpalatable of a message actually serves as proof of its truthfulness. 
It would be absolute madness for the apostles to invent a doctrine that was so widely despised and hated and seen as foolish, much less a doctrine that would lead to their own imprisonment and martyrdom, lead to their own death. It's the more peculiar and unpalatable aspects of the gospel that actually demonstrate its veracity. This is no man-made message. This is divine revelation. And so Paul, in being eager to preach this gospel to the Romans, he wants the church in this context to un understand that he is unashamed. He is not ashamed. Though Paul has already been imprisoned for the gospel in Philippi by, at this point, though he's already been chased out of Thessalonica for preaching the gospel, though he's already been ridiculed in Athens, though he's already seen that the gospel is a message that is folly to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, he remains unashamed. None of that will deter him from preaching the gospel. And he wants the Romans to know it. He believes, as he says elsewhere, that the word of the cross may be folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, many of you know we had VBS a few weeks ago, and a couple weeks ago, and one of the stories that we taught the children on one of the days was the story of Peter and John in the book of Acts, in Acts 3 and 4. So we know this story well. The Peter and John go to the temple to pray, and they see a lame man outside of the temple who's begging for gold, but they cannot offer him gold, but what they can offer him is healing. So they heal him. They perform a miracle in the name of Jesus, and the man rises up and walks, and this causes a bit of a commotion, and a crowd gathers to find out what's going on, and Peter, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, sees this as an opportunity, so he preaches the gospel to the crowd. But of course, the preaching of the gospel leads to opposition, and so the religious rulers arrest Peter and John, we're preaching the gospel. They spend the night in prison, and the next day they're brought before the council. And the council asks them and orders them to stop preaching Jesus, to stop preaching the gospel. And they essentially say, we're not going to comply with that, and we're going to keep preaching the gospel. And in fact, we cannot help it, but speak of what we've seen and heard. And so we talked to the kids about this story, and we taught them the importance of obeying and fearing God over man. One of the lessons we learned from this, as well as the need for boldness when it comes to sharing the gospel, to have that kind of boldness. Well, the next day, one of the dads of one of the kids messaged me and told me that his son came home from VBS that day, and he was quite convicted. And so he wrote up his own gospel tract based on John 14, 6, and he had a soccer match that night, and he gave the gospel tract out to all of his teammates. Isn't that awesome? I think that's awesome. Grade, grade four. Grade four. Okay, that's what it looks like to be unashamed. Unashamed. Does that word describe you? Are you unashamed? Are you unashamed of the gospel? Another way you can ask that question is this. Do your unbelieving coworkers or neighbors or family members or friends, do they know how significant the gospel is to you? I'm not asking if they know that you're a Christian. That should be a given. Hopefully they do know you're a Christian. I'm not asking if they know that you go to church. I'm asking you if they know how significant the gospel is to you. Is Jesus regularly on your lips? Do you speak about your love for him? more so than you'd speak about your love for sports or even your love for your family members. Have you told them about how they too can be made right with God? And how they too can receive salvation through the gospel? Have you unashamedly shared the gospel with them? And here's another diagnostic question. This is one that has convicted me in recent weeks. When unbelieving friends or family members come over for dinner, and you're a family that would normally do family worship at dinner time, do you still do it in the presence of those unbelievers? Or is there a certain amount of fear and shame that you feel such that you refrain from doing so? 
reality is, when we think about all that the gospel has accomplished in our lives, how could we ever be ashamed of it? How could we ever be ashamed of the very thing that saved us from hell? It's quite silly when you think about it. That, that'd be like being ashamed of a parachute that saved you from a plane crash. It doesn't make any sense. It'd be like being ashamed of a life preserver or a life raft that saved you from a shipwreck. It makes no sense. We ought not to be ashamed of that which saved us. We ought to be proud of it. This is why Paul says in Galatians 6.14, he says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's not just, it's not just that he's not ashamed of it. He actually boasts in it. He's proud of it. He glories in it. Indeed, the gospel is an aroma of death to death to those who are perishing. There's just no way around it. That's always going to be the case. It's an aroma of death to death to those who are perishing. And those it saves ought not be ashamed of that. Because while it's an aroma of death to death to those who are perishing, we know firsthand it's also an aroma of life to life to those who are being saved. And it was such an aroma to us if we are in Christ. And so before moving on, I'll wrap up this point with this warning from Luke 9, 26. Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of Christ and his words, Christ will be ashamed of him. May that never be true of you or I. The gospel produces fearless witnesses. Number three, the gospel is a proclamation of good news. It is a proclamation of good news. As we continue to break down this verse, we finally arrive at the key words, the gospel. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And we use this word a lot as Christians, gospel. I've used it, I don't know, countless times in this sermon already. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is? Are you able to define it? Would you get nervous if someone asked you what the gospel is because you're not sure? Can you articulate the gospel? Can you give a defense to anyone who might ask for the reason for the hope that is within you? What is the gospel? Well, before I answer that, I want to explain three things that the gospel is not, just to be clear, because sometimes the gospel can be confused with these three things, three things that the gospel is not. Number one, the gospel is not the Bible. It's not the Bible. It's revealed in the Bible, but it's not the Bible. A few years ago, I was preaching on the corner of King and University on a Friday night at Street Evangelism. And a man came by and sat down and was listening to the preaching. And I couldn't quite peg if he was appreciating what I was saying or if maybe it was an aroma of death to death to him. But he was listening intently. And so once I got down from the box, I went over to him and asked him, what do you think of what I was saying? And the first thing he told me is that he was a pastor. And then he proceeded to tell me that he thought it was ridiculous that I and the rest of the team thought that we could adequately share the gospel with someone in just a few minutes on the corner of a street. And I found that kind of strange. And so I asked him, well, what do you think the gospel is? To which he responded, the gospel is the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You can't share the entire Bible with someone in just one conversation on the streets. Hey, eh, that's wrong. That is not true. The gospel is not synonymous with the Bible. It is not all of Genesis to Revelation. Secondly, the gospel is not your testimony. Okay, if you share with a loved one about all that God has done in your life, how you aren't the same person who you used to be, you describe who you used to be and now who you are by God's grace, if you share that but you don't explicitly speak about the person and work of Christ, then you may have shared your testimony, but you haven't actually shared the gospel. Because the gospel is not about you. The gospel is about Jesus. Perhaps you've testified to the effects of the gospel in your life, but you haven't actually shared the gospel. You have to 
explicitly articulate about what Christ has done. And so this is why we always ask in the baptism tank, that second question, what is the gospel? Then tell us how you came to believe it. The gospel is not the Bible. The gospel is not your testimony. Third, finally, the gospel is not something that we live out. And so you'll hear this all the time. Christians will say, we need to live out the gospel. We need to be the gospel to the world around us. We need to preach the gospel through the way that we live and through our actions and our kindness toward others. To be frank, that's nonsense. Okay, that doesn't actually make sense. And as Christians, of all people, we believe that words matter. Okay, you cannot live out the gospel any more than you can live out the story of Jonah. Okay, think about that. You cannot live out the gospel any more than you can live out the story of Noah or any other event in human history. Now, to give those people the benefit of the doubt that say that, I think what they mean is that we ought to live in light of the gospel, and we can do so. We can demonstrate the power of the gospel to those around us through our actions and through the changes it produces in our lives, but you cannot literally live out the gospel. That doesn't make any sense. The gospel is not the Bible. It's not your testimony. It's not something that you live out, so what is it? Well, the word for gospel here in verse 16 is the word euangelion in the Greek, and the word literally means good news. And so the gospel, first and foremost, is good news. And what do you do if you have good news? Okay, you just get engaged or you're excited to announce that, that you and your wife are, are pregnant, expecting a baby. What do you do when you have that good news? You, you share it. You share good news. You declare it with others. You don't keep it to yourself. The gospel is a proclamation of good news. And while we certainly don't want to teach a, and preach a truncated gospel, and there's been much talk of this of late, that's true, but there really is a simplicity to the gospel message. The gospel is both simple and complex. Its implications are vast and far-reaching on the one hand, and there are so many issues in the church and in the culture that we can categorize as gospel issues that touch on gospel truth, but the basic message of the gospel is actually quite simple. Charles Hodge put it this way. He said, the gospel is so simple that small children can understand it. And it is so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches. I like that. I want to focus on that first point. It's so simple that small children can understand it. The gospel seeks to answer the simple question, how can sinful man be made right before a holy God? And so when the pastor on the streets a few years ago, when he told me that he thought the gospel was the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I told him, well, the problem with that is that's not actually how the Bible defines the gospel. Like, we actually have a definition of what the gospel is, and it's fairly clear in the Bible. And so I turned with him in my Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul gives a succinct definition of the gospel. I'll read the first few verses. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. So he's going to remind them of the gospel. This is it. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That's the gospel, according to Paul and the apostles. The gospel pertains to the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and that he rose on the third day. That's the gospel. Okay, now there's a lot packed into those words, those few words. We could talk about them until we're blue in the face. In fact, Paul will go on to unpack that truth throughout the rest of Romans. There's a lot there. But in its simplest form, the gospel is simply the message of Christ's death and resurrection. 
that Jesus lived the life that we could not live and that he died the death that we deserve to die. That we have all sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of our sin is death and hell. But the good news of the gospel is that the sinless Son of God died on the cross as a substitute sacrifice for sinners. Bearing the wrath of God towards sin upon himself, thereby paying the penalty that we deserve. He breathed his last on the cross. He died. He was dead. There was no oxygen in his lungs. There was no blood going through his veins. He was dead. And he was buried. But then three days later, he rose victorious from the grave. Victorious over death, sin, and Satan. And the Bible says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. It's only through Jesus. That is the gospel. And Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 15, this message is of first importance. There is no news that's more urgent. There is no message that has a higher priority on it than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all that to say, it is good news that must be proclaimed. We must be eager to preach it even as Paul is in Romans 1. It is good news that must be proclaimed. Number four, and the last few points are a lot shorter. Number four, the gospel unleashes God's power. <coughs> the gospel unleashes God's power. We continue in this verse, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. This is why Paul is so unashamed. Because he knows that in preaching the gospel to people, he is unleashing the very power of God upon its hearers. And notice, he doesn't say the gospel simply brings power, but he actually says the gospel is power. And it's not just any power, it's God's power. It's, it's divine power from above. The gospel is not simply advice to people that they can take or leave. It is God's power to change their lives. And so when the gospel is proclaimed, it's not just a bunch of words, a collection of words that tell a story that's going forth. Rather, when the gospel goes forth, the almighty power of God is being unleashed. And I, I I've always loved and appreciated this well-known quote from Charles Spurgeon on this topic. He said, the gospel is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. God's power to save the sinner, it's not found in someone's intellectual abilities, their argumentation skills, their rhetorical skills, not that those things don't matter at all, but that's not where the power is found. The power is found in the gospel itself. And so that means then when someone softens the gospel or takes away some of those more unpalatable truths to try and make it easier for people to receive what they're actually doing is they're robbing the gospel of its saving power. A half gospel or a distorted gospel is a powerless gospel. There is no power to convert the sinner. Because the power to convert the sinner is in the gospel itself. And so, brothers and sisters, if we want to see our country turn back to Jesus Christ... If we want to see that happen, then we need access to divine power. If we want to see this country repent of all its heinous sins, and they are legion, then we need access to a greater power than we have in and of ourselves. I think we all understand that. And the power is found in the gospel. The gospel is the very power of God to transform lives, and to transform marriages, and to transform families and to transform cultures, and to transform nations. Such that one day we know because of the faithful proclamation of the gospel, there is a day coming when men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne, worshiping Christ in all of his glory. Why? Because the gospel unleashes God's power. And so we must be faithful to proclaim it as Christians, to proclaim it in our homes, on the streets, in our culture, and of course in the church. The gospel unleashes God's power. Number five, the gospel saves sinners. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Okay, the gospel is not without a purpose. It's not without an aim. The gospel has a direction and it has a purpose, and its purpose is to save sinners. And so, of course, this also begs the question, or begs a question, and the question is, what do we need saving from? We talk about salvation a lot, but why do we need saving in the first place? And Paul will go on to explain many things throughout the book of Romans, and he does in his other letters as well, all that we need saving from. And we see that we need saving from quite a lot. First and foremost, we need saving from the very wrath of God. The Bible actually says if you are not in Christ, then the wrath of God abides on you right now. Okay? It will be experienced in a fuller way after the judgment when you're cast out of God's presence. But in one sense, the wrath of God abides on you right now if you are not in Christ. We need saving from his wrath. Without Christ, we are at enmity with God, it says in Romans 5. We are alienated from him. And so we need saving from that state. We need saving from sin itself. We need saving from being lost. We need saving from the futility of a life without Christ. We need saving from a yoke of slavery. We need saving from death. We need saving from a miserable state of hopelessness and purposelessness that marks the person who does not know Jesus Christ. And of course, we need saving from the eternal fires of hell. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. That's the most popular false gospel today. That there is anything that you can do to save yourself. Without Christ, we are unworthy. We are unclean. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible actually says we are following the prince of the power of the air. That means we follow Satan. And we're by nature children of wrath. That's who we are outside of Christ. And so this then is why the gospel is appropriately called good news. Because it's God's power to completely and totally save us from that state. Salvation here, I believe, is all-encompassing. It speaks to our regeneration and our justification and our sanctification and our glorification and all that those things entail. If you don't know what those things are, I would encourage you to just read the rest of Romans. We don't have time to go over each of those words right now. But all that to say the gospel totally and utterly and completely saves us. Through the gospel, there's a sense in which we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners. Such that if there's no gospel, then there's no salvation. If the gospel's not preached, no one will be saved. God changes the heart, the heart changes the person, the person changes the world. Well, how does God change the heart? He changes and he saves the heart through the power of the gospel. That's it. The gospel saves sinners. Number six, the gospel is for all peoples. The gospel is for all peoples. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That word there, everyone, it speaks to the wide scope of the gospel call. The gospel is not limited or bound by ethnicity or by gender or by economic status or by intelligence or by education level. No, the gospel is for all. The gospel is for men and women. The gospel is for slave and free. It's for children and adults. It's for rich and poor. It's for blue collar and white collar. It's for Canadians and Americans and Chinese and Africans and Indians and It's for all peoples, without exception. And this is what's so beautiful about the kingdom of God. This is what's so wonderful about even our gathering here this morning. I can look out and see people from all kinds of different backgrounds, and yet we're all brothers and sisters. We're all united because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some may wonder in this verse why Paul says that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Greek, also to the Greek. Uh, Well, there's several reasons, I think, why he says that the gospel is for the Jew first. 
Uh, the Jews, of course, are the ancient people of God whom God chose. They're the ones who received the promise of the Messiah. They're the ones from whom the Messiah came. Jesus was born a Jew, came from the Jews. And we know from Acts that the gospel first started to spread in Jerusalem. This is how Christ designed it. This was his command for the gospel to go forth in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel first went forth to Jewish people, and then it fanned out from there. And when you think about it, that the gospel was preached to the Jews first, especially the Jews in Jerusalem, it's actually a great encouragement. The first people to hear the gospel preached by the apostles in Acts 2, when you think about it, they were the very people that were guilty of murdering the Savior. They were the ones demanding that Pilate crucify Jesus just a few weeks earlier. And Peter points this out. He said, you are the ones that put him on that cross. They're the first ones to hear the gospel. And here's why that's so encouraging. Because if they could be forgiven for the sin of crucifying the sinless Son of God, then you and I can rest assured that we can be forgiven and cleansed of whatever sins we've committed as well. If Christ's atonement was able to fully pay for the sins of his murderers, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, then we can rest assured that his atonement is able to fully pay for all of our sins as well. And so this little phrase is actually a wonderful encouragement to us that it went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. As you look out at the world, if, if you read the news, if you keep up to date on what's going on, you'll know that the world right now is plagued with division and tribalism and partiality and it's only getting worse by the day. And maybe you wonder how on earth a level of unity and love and respect could ever be brought to a society like ours where there is so much hate and division. The answer is the power of God in the gospel. That's the only answer. That's the only way. There is no other way. The gospel is the only hope. It's plan A and there's no plan B. And the gospel is for all peoples. And this is why Christ has commanded us to be his witnesses to the end of the earth and to make disciples of all nations. Because the gospel is for all peoples. It's for everyone, as Paul says. Finally, number seven, the gospel demands faith. And we'll close with this point. The gospel demands faith. The gospel call goes out to everyone, but salvation is not given to everyone. Salvation is not given to everyone, it's given to everyone who believes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. And so if point number six, our last point, spoke to the universal nature of the gospel call, spoke to the exclusivity of the gospel, then this final point speaks to, sorry, the inclusivity was the last point. This final point speaks to its exclusivity, that the gospel demands faith. The power to save is only applied to individuals through faith. That's it. If there's no faith, there's no salvation. In order to be saved from the wrath of God, you must believe the gospel, and that belief must take root in your heart. It must take root in the core of who you are, such that it produces in you a longing to follow Jesus no matter what and to obey him no matter what. It's not enough to intellectually assent to the truths of the gospel. If you grow up in the church, you're particularly in danger of this. You can write an exam and ace an exam on the gospel because you've heard it taught from a young age. You know the gospel in your head, but the question is, do you know it in your heart? It's not enough to know it in your head. Do you believe it in your heart, in the core of who you are? Do you have faith? Paul will go on later in Romans, in Romans 10, 9, to say it this way. He will say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? Anyone can confess that Jesus is Lord. Anyone can do that. But true salvation comes to the one who confesses that Jesus is Lord because they believe it in their heart. They believe it in their heart. And so I leave you with this question. Do you believe the gospel? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus? And if you haven't, why don't you do it right now?
Wouldn't it be great if today was a day of salvation in this place? Why not receive the gospel by faith right now? Come to Jesus right now for the forgiveness of your sins and for salvation and everlasting life. To have the power of God unleashed upon your life and begin to change you from the inside out. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. Maybe you're sitting there and you're just like, I'm too unworthy for the gospel. We're all too unworthy. That's the whole point. If you humbly would turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus and believe the gospel today, then Christ will save you. Christ will save you. And it will be a total, complete salvation. Do you believe the gospel? Your answer to that question is yes. If you do believe the gospel, then my hope and my prayer is that you would leave here this morning with a renewed zeal and love for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day, and all of the hope that that wonderful truth imparts to us. May you truly be able to echo the words of Paul in Romans 1.16 and say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this wonderful message that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we pray for anyone who is here this morning that has not turned in repentance and faith to the Savior to receive salvation. Would you cause them by your Holy Spirit and by your grace to do so even right now? As they consider the words that have been sung, as they reflect upon the time of the Lord's Supper that they've witnessed, as they consider the words that have been preached, we pray that they would bend the knee to Jesus Christ, that they would hand all their sin over to him and receive his righteousness in its place by faith in the gospel. For the rest of us, Lord, may you... Empower us by your spirit to go here unashamed of the gospel and help us to be faithful to proclaim it in our daily lives, in our homes, in our families, in our culture, in the church, in the world. We are not sufficient in ourselves to do this, but our sufficiency is from you. So would you please empower us to walk in this way? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.